Well, that was fun, right? <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah, that is something to rejoice in and be excited about. Um, that is awesome. I love Baptism Sundays, and it's awesome. It's a picture. I got to fix my clothes here. My pocket was inside out for a second there. Uh, that's a quick, it's a quick wardrobe change back there. Plus, it's really cold. The, wa- the water is really warm, but it's cold back there. But um, it's a picture of new life, what we just saw. Um, these people that we just saw up here weren't just now saved, right? Because they passed through these waters. That doesn't, isn't what saved them. They passed through these waters in front of us all here today because they have already been saved by King Jesus. Amen? Amen. This was merely a reenactment ceremony of a spiritual reality of what brought them from spiritual death to life. And now they're running after Jesus with all that they have. And so much so that they wanted to get up in front of here, in front of all of us, you know, friends, families, maybe teachers, siblings, children, etc., the whole wide world, and declare that they identify with most, they most fully identify with the death, burial, and resurrection into new life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. So this is an awesome Sunday. Um, I love Baptism Sundays because it's a great cause for great celebration of what God has done. And so, in a very real sense, the message has already been spoken in the lives of these disciples that we just showcased here today. You know, you heard their stories, we heard their testimonies, we saw them plunged underneath the water, we've witnessed them rise again, and we celebrated, and these people have had their humanity redeemed and restored after being dead in a season of sin. Um, And so their very lives are the message today. And their lives actually coincide with exactly what we see taking place in the passage that we preach from. And I'm excited to get into the Gospel of Mark once again. And what we're going to see is people responding to the call of Jesus. And having repented and believed in his gospel, these individuals we're going to see in the passage today are seeking to live in a whole new way, just as we saw these people that were just plunged underneath the waters. So let's open up the Gospel of Mark. It'll be on the screen as well, but if you can, and have a copy of the Scriptures either on your phone, on your device, or in a paper copy in front of you, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, and we'll start in verses 14 and read through 20. And this is what it says. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God, and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. God, this is a wonderful passage. It's abrupt, but it's not out of the blue. And I pray that as we look in here and as we see what is showcased here before us in the lives of these first four disciples, that we would be able to see what is evidence in the lives of these four disciples um, that were just up on stage, 
that are seeking to live in a whole new way after repenting and believing in your gospel. And so, God, I pray that you would add your blessing to those who read and hear and then seek to put into practice what this word says. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we just read the passage, and and I can recognize that there's some strangeness to the passage potentially. And as we teach through the passage, what I want to do is I want to highlight the fact that it is critically important for us to understand the culture and the customs and the context in which this passage was written. Um, we need to understand the culture and the customs and the broader context of the passage, and it's going to prove essential for us to understand those things, that when we see what we see taking place in the passage, it actually makes sense to us. If we don't just let the passage just kind of seem like it's a standalone passage, it kind of seems a little strange, and the call to discipleship seems a little bit costly, and honestly, it doesn't even seem that compelling potentially, but We need to put on our cultural glasses and observe this text as we teach through the text. So we want to see the culture and the customs and the broader context of this small passage, and then hopefully it will make sense to us. So let's look at the culture and the customs that this passage finds itself in. Even though the word disciple is not found in our text today, we will see four individuals eager to engage in a discipleship relationship with Jesus and what the culture and the customs of the times called discipleship. Now, we won't see that word disciple appear in the Gospel of Mark until chapter 2, but we see its form and we see its function here in chapter 1. Discipleship was part of the culture and the customs of the times, and especially with the Jewish people. Um, in our membership classes, I, whenever I talk about discipleship, I always highlight this. Anybody who seeks to become a member here at FCC, I, I talk them through this. Because when you become a member of Faith Community Church, what you're signing up for, so to speak, is to engage in intentional acts of discipleship within the community of other believers that are gathered here. So what do we mean by discipleship? What was the culture like? How was discipleship practiced back there in the first century and even before that? What did it mean to be a disciple? Well, here's the culture and the custom. In a typical Jewish family, children would begin their schooling at the age of five or six, and that time was referred to as Bet Sefer. The focus was on centered on learning and memorizing the Torah. How are you guys doing at that, right? The first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it would be memorized and they would study it. So we see, especially in the Gospel of Matthew and the narrative of of Jesus' temptation, what does he do when the devil is throwing accusations and questions and doubts in his mind? What does he do? He quotes the first five books of the Torah, right? The book of Deuteronomy. He knew it, right? Because that's what every Jewish young boy and girl would do. They would memorize the Torah. And parents, what they would do is at the age of 12, if you were a girl, or the age of 13, if you're a boy, because boys seem to mature a lot slower than girls, um, you would actually become a religious adult at that point, all right? Most girls would soon marry, and then boys would typically learn some sort of trade, whether it was a family trade or some other else's family trade. And parents would start to make arrangements for boys to do apprenticeships when they were very young. And after they finished kind of their primary school at age 13, many would go and live with a tradesman for a time. And they would earn their keep by doing chores and laboring as they learned from a craftsman in a specific craft. 
And people would actually lay down a lot to enter into this discipleship relationship. They essentially had to walk away from their past and then step into their future, so to speak. And so now some boys who were specially gifted might continue their studies with a local rabbi in what is known as Bet Mizrash, learning meaning house of study or a secondary school. This was kind of like a more intense process of understanding and applying the Torah and the oral traditions of specific rabbis to specific situations. And so in order for rabbis to keep their interpretive views alive and their traditions alive, they would allow students called Talmids, which is the Hebrew word for disciple, to study underneath them. And the disciples' goal was to become like their rabbi, by learning and applying the wisdom of the Torah and the oral traditions to daily situations. And this season of life was called discipleship. And it was intensive and very, very extensive. One author says this, The central point to grasp is that Jewish disciples did not do their learning in a classroom. True, they would listen attentively to their rabbi's teaching while sitting at his feet, the accepted posture of a learner, But they would also follow their rabbi from place to place, watching carefully what he did and sharing closely in his work as he directed them. So basically, this was massive, intensive, extensive, on-the-job training. One third-century collection of writings from the Jewish people called the Mishnah encouraged disciples to be covered and dusty with the dust of their rabbi. What was meant by that were that disciples were to walk so closely behind their teacher that if the teacher would kick up dust on the road, that it would fall on his disciples. They're just to follow his every move. So be covered in the dust of your rabbi is what the phrase was. So being a disciple was serious business. But honestly, it was really only reserved for the best of the best and the cream of the crop. Not everybody had this opportunity. Being a disciple of a rabbi was serious business. So let's just say that you do well in primary schooling, and then you excel in your secondary education, and you have a fire and have a passion to follow after a rabbi to keep his interpretive views alive for the next generation. Like all the boxes are checked for you, so to speak. Then what you would do is you would go to a rabbi and ask if you might be able to follow him. And the rabbi would no doubt look you over and he would observe you and he might acquire some more information about you. And if it all came up roses, he might say to you, come follow me. And that invitation required a deep level of commitment and passion and fire Sometimes it actually meant to live with your rabbi 24 hours a day. It was all-consuming. And when a rabbi would say, hey, why don't you come follow me, it really meant come be like me. The life of a rabbi was the mold that the Talmud, a disciple, was to be pressed into like Play-Doh. Like, and out pops like another little replica of this rabbi. And most people, listen, most people were turned down. You don't get this opportunity. It was reserved for the best of the best. That was the culture. That was the custom. That was the cultural norm. And to be a rabbi in a local synagogue was a big, exceptional deal. 
And those seeking to be discipled by one of them, only the top percentile of the population need apply. It was reserved for the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And after the best of the best did their absolute best to stand out among their peers, they hoped to be done, have done enough to potentially be in line to have a sought-after, culturally respective pillar within the community position called rabbi. But even then, they still had to humbly ask if the rabbi would take them on. So that's the culture, and that's the custom. Now look at what Mark says. Chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, his brother of Simon, casting a net into a sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And you're like, what? These guys? These fishermen, fishing guys. Like, what about the best of the best, Jesus? What about the cream of the crop? And what about the fact that Simon and his brother Andrew didn't even humbly ask you if they could follow you? The way Mark tells the story, it's just Jesus just passes along the Sea of Galilee and he sees these guys fishing and he says the culturally respected religious pillars within the community were saying, he says, come and follow me. And so we say, well, what's going on? This is so culturally upsetting. This is not the way things were normally done around here, Jesus. And Jesus comes to them and he calls them. They didn't seek him out. He sought them out. Jesus sought out this distinct class of rough-around-the-edges guys These first followers were fishermen, and their normalcy is going to show itself all throughout the gospel narratives. Jesus is going to nickname some of them sons of thunder because they want to call down fire from heaven. Peter, was he rough around the edges? Right? Even after three years of intensive discipleship, he tried to kill somebody in John 18. Right? He takes his sword and he aims for the head, but he's such a bad aim, he cuts off an ear instead. Talk about rough around the edges, guys. That's after three years of discipleship. And Jesus seeks out, he sought after these normal, rough around the edges guys. And I love the great lengths to which Mark goes to, to let this reality sink into us, his readers' minds. Three times in one sentence. Mark is going to emphasize the reality that Jesus sought after these guys known as fishermen. Look at it. Where does Jesus walk? He walks by what? The Sea of Galilee. What does he see Peter and Simon doing? Casting a net into the sea, right? And just in case we don't get it, he adds this editorial comment. What does he say? For they were fishermen. Oh, now I get it, right? I just thought they were caught littering. No, we thought they thought the Sea of Galilee was a recycling bin for old ropes. No, they're fishermen, right? Mark wants to emphasize that for us. 
Mark is making it very blatantly clear Jesus was going to go after these normal guys. And he comes and he offers something to them that was culturally reserved for the best of the best or the cream of the crop. And here they were commonly throwing a net into the sea in hopes that they could make ends meet for one more day. People, this is another reason why I just love Jesus. He actually comes to us. Although we don't deserve it, And he offers to give us our royalty status back that we had willfully forfeited. If you're wondering what you're talking about, listen to last week's sermon. We have a chance to be part of the kingdom of God that is at hand. And he just goes to the normal, rough around the edges people and says, Hey, come be part of this kingdom of God thing. And this is made available to us, normal people. The people that you saw get into the water today were really normal people. They're not immune to problems. They're not holier than you or I. They have very normal problems in their very normal lives. And that's exactly who God comes to and says, hey, follow me. This is an open option for everyone. I love this about Jesus. If you wonder whether or not these people are normal or I'm normal or you're normal, this is what one author says. Rather than a record of exemplary discipleship, the disciples misunderstand Jesus repeatedly. They fail in ministry. They squabble amongst themselves. They refuse to wash one another's feet. They fall asleep as Jesus agonizes in prayer. And then they completely desert him. And in many ways, it's an abject litany of failure their discipleship was. He says, I've never come across a how-to book with a title like Discipleship, the Simon Peter way. And I'm fairly confident it will never be written. And yet, Jesus commits himself to these men. And he invites them to be like him. And in God's grace and in God's time, they will be. And so will we. We can be confident of this just as the Apostle Paul was when he wrote the Corinthians this. And we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. When we look at the Lord and we set him in front of us, we can be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we normal people spend time intentionally following in the footsteps of our rabbi, we become covered in his dust, so to speak. We become like him, doing what he does, loving what he loves, hating what he hates. And we do so progressively over time. And when we do that, we will start to reflect him as we're transformed into that same image of him. So Jesus, we we referenced this last week, Jesus was the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus didn't. And he reclaimed and restored lost humanity. Jesus, as the second Adam, came to the planet to redeem our humanity. He's the supreme example of what it means to be a human. And Jesus identified and intentionally spent time with these very normal guys and trained them to be like him. So Jesus took what was culturally relevant at the time and he leveraged it for God's purposes of redemption. 
He found people doing ordinary things like fishing, and he said, hey, come follow me, meaning come be like me. These guys in the text didn't have the it factor. They weren't the all-stars. They didn't have the training of the others, and the community did. They weren't the valedictorians of their class, but he chose them. And the gospel, or the, the, the one who writes the book of Acts, Luke, tells us about their normalcy in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated. That makes me feel really good. After seeing you speak, I can perceive you're uneducated. Right, right. They're just common men, but they're astonished, and they recognize that what? They had been with Jesus. They're living like different humans. They were uneducated, common men, and Jesus came to them and gave them an opportunity of a lifetime to learn how to live the way humans were intended to live. And Jesus approached them and basically says, hey, I think you ordinary people can be like me. And he chose them. And in three years' time, he's going to remind them of this in the upper room when he says to them in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So Jesus comes and he says, I want you. And a few years down the line, the Apostle Paul told the Philippians that he was sure of something. What something? Well, he said this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So here's a quick point of application before we talk about the broader context of this passage. Here's the question. Are you a disciple? Are you learning from Jesus? What work has he begun on you recently that needs further development to be closer to that day of completion? Your whole life is on the job training to look more like Jesus. So what areas of your life need some more attention? What are you learning these days? What areas of your normal life need to look more like his perfected one? Because that's what it means to be a Talmud. That's what it means to be a disciple. To be like him. So that's the culture and that's the custom of the day. And now we need to understand a little bit of the broader context of this passage in order to understand the responsiveness of these initial disciples. Because Jesus came to them and says, hey, follow me. And then Mark says this. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hard hands and followed him. When you read this passage without understanding the culture and the customs and the broader context of the Gospel of Mark itself, I think this seems just a little bit strange. Who does this? Who is this responsive? The responsiveness of these initial called ones seems just a little bit abrupt. Think about it. 
Not many of us would leave our occupations to start following some guy as he walked around Whatcom County. Like he just shows up at your job site if you're a carpenter or work construction. And then you just leave the construction site with the wall half built and the excavator still running, right? What if you were a barber or a beautician? You just drop the scissors and walk away halfway done, right? I thought about this. What if you're a dentist? You hand the drill over and the little suction device to the numbed up patient in the chair and say, good luck. I'm going to follow somebody. The immediate responsiveness seems rather strange and honestly a little bit reckless, and it makes me wonder, is this what Jesus expects of me? Is that what it looks like to follow Jesus? Remember, these are men who had families that depended on them to make a living, and now they're just going to drop their nets and leave their father to follow a guy that just happened to be passing along the Seal of Galilee during work hours. What gives? Like, when you... When you read the story, you're like, that's strange. So if you just read verses 16 through 20 without remembering the broader context, it does seem a little off-putting, but we need to remember what Mark has already told us in verses 1 through 15. The call was quick and the response was abrupt, certainly, but it wasn't out of the blue. Remember the ministry of John the Baptist after nearly 400 years of silence from God. For some time, we we learned this already, John had been conducting a successful ministry that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem participated in. Now, certainly not everybody. He was using hyperbolic speaking, 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 speaking. A lot of people knew what John the Baptist was all about. They were willing to leave the comforts of their home to turn into the desert for their hope. And they go out to find out what John the Baptist is all about. John was a spectacle to behold and many people beheld him and were ministered to by him. And there's a really good chance that these fishermen had not only heard of John and his message, but perhaps they were dunked under the water by him as well in order to prepare for the Messiah who was to come. Get ready, get set to have an encounter with God is what John said. And many had been coming from all over. So why not Simon and Andrew and James and John? Unless they were living in a rock or under a rock in Galilee, it stands to reason that they at least knew the content of John's message so much so that when Jesus showed up in Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, it made sense to them. They had heard about the urgency They have must have felt some sort of conviction and sense that this really was the appointed time that God was decisively on the move again, speaking through the prophets again. And God was getting ready to show up, and when Jesus shows up and calls them, they radically respond. It could be that the reason they responded so well, listen, to Jesus was because John the Baptist had done a good job preparing the way. And that's encouraging to us. Think about this. Some of you have been preparing the ground in people's lives for so long. Some of you have just been like 
planting seeds that you've never seen sprout, but they're there, and you've been faithful for a long time. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Do you know what it takes? All it takes is for God to show up and cause new life to come popping out of that seed that you planted. What you can't do, he can. So keep doing what you're called to do. Prepare the way for people to respond to an invitation from Jesus when he seeks them out. And pray for their practical and radical and reasonable response to something they've heard about for a long time now. And so although the, although the call is abrupt and the response is pretty radical, it wasn't out of the blue because time was of the essence, so to speak. The kingdom of God was at hand and the time was fulfilled. And you know what these guys did? They repented and they believed. And there was an urgency among them to get on board as quickly as possible. They didn't want this chance to pass them by. And so you know what they did? They dropped their nets They left relationships behind to get on board with this kingdom of God thing, regardless of what it would cost. And so here's the question of application. How about you? Is there an urgency to you following Jesus? People, listen. Two two or three paragraphs left. Listen to this. Have you been around this building or been around God's people for a long time, but you have never personally, decisively, abruptly, but not out of the blue in a way, decide to actually repent from your sins and believe in the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ and follow him as his kingdom advances to its appointed greater end. Have you had that kind of quote-unquote, I have decided to follow Jesus moment in your life? Just because you come to this building every week doesn't mean anything if you haven't really decided to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It doesn't mean that everybody becomes like John the Baptist or a pastor. It means on-the-job training takes place wherever you're on the job. What does it look like to be a construction worker living for Jesus, a dentist living for Jesus, teacher living for Jesus, wherever you're at? Have you had that I have decided to follow Jesus moment in your life? Hopefully, all of us in this room and all of us listening online have, but if you haven't, it's one that you have to make, and you know when your time is? It's right now. Don't delay, because time is of the essence. The unparalleled honor and privilege of being disciples of the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God made them drop their nets. So here's the question, will you? Well, you, the opportunity to participate in something that is massive should not be delayed. The Messiah is seeking you out and calling you to be his disciple. And he invites you to get dusty with the dust as you follow him around and you get pressed into his mold wherever you're at. And so here's a good definition of discipleship for you. Discipleship is learning how to be a human. Many of us struggle with being human. It's hard. And we need help. And Jesus took on flesh and blood to show us how to live as redeemed humans. 
And he comes to these normal guys and he shows them. And you know what he is? He's willing to show you as well. So will you allow him to show you? These disciples did. The four disciples that we read about in the text did. And they started following. And they're very, very normal, normal, normal people. And the invitation is to all of us. God, I pray that as we think about these things, as we try to learn how to be human in a right way, which is very difficult to do, God, I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would instruct us in these things, that you would show us how to live as people who need to be redeemed from our own sinful decisions. God, we thank you for these disciples that stood up on stage and got plunged underneath the water to demonstrate that they most fully identify with what you have done for them, not what they have done for them. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is applicable to their lives, and they want to follow. And I pray that we all would follow, that we would have a sense of urgency here today, that we would understand that this massive opportunity is available for every one of us in this room, but we must respond as you call. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.